John? I think he was having an audio issue. Yes, sorry. Some guy is driving a very loud boat outside my house. <laughs> that, that, so that loud sound. Okay, now it's going away. These, these, are, <laughs> these are real 1% problems, John. Welcome back to the Law Talk podcast from the Hoover Institution, coming to you, as we always do, in the faculty lounge at the Epstein U School of Law, where we are proud to report that there were no learning losses from COVID, because there were no learning gains prior to it. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter, co-founder of Kite and Key Media, and now no longer the only member of this troika to have not written a book. We're on that later. And I'm joined, as always by the Anna and Elsa of the conservative legal movement. I'll need to visit a therapist if either of you get that reference. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. So, fellas, we have a lot to get to. Um, I have to start you with Donald Trump and the FBI's raiding Mar-a-Lago to go through the former president's papers. And let's start here because we have not talked about this since it happened. There were a lot of people, including a lot of people who are generally sympathetic to Trump, who said when this happened, boy, this is really upping the ante. Um, It's now been about a month since that incident took place. So, Richard, I'll start with you. At that remove, having learned some more details in the interim, was it proper for the Justice Department to do this and to do this in this fashion? Well, I think the answer is still not exactly clear. Um, The usual rule that I have is one of political prudence before constitutional law. And it would take me a very serious set of incidents to get me to engage in a practice that's never been done before, uh, which is to send a search warrant out in order to go through the house of a sitting president or a former president. So presumptively, it turns out that I'm against this. Um, If they could show some kind of urgency, then my basic sympathies might move in the opposite direction. But in this particular case, what they were able to show is that these doctrines were strewn over the floors and housed, unkempt and unorganized. What they were not able to show was that any single one of them had been leaked to anybody outside of the Trump household and had actually proposed an imminent threat to a security leak. So this is not like leaky leaks or something of that sort taking place where the information was to go to go out the door. And then on the other hand, when it comes to the way in which this thing gets covered, as best I can tell from the accounts that I've read, Mr. Trump manages to do everything to make credible uh, the things that the FBI probably should have never done to begin with. Uh, There are allegations that instead they've already turned over all the documents that we have and there's nothing more to you to take. And so it turns out that now does this count as obstruction of justice, lying to the Justice Department in some way or not? And, And I think there's a very serious question that has rather inexperienced lawyers running this thing will put him into hotter soup perhaps than he really ought to be in. What's the public reaction to this? Well, as best I can tell, uh, Trump's behavior has been sufficiently scattered and erratic uh, that they're the majority of the population seems to be in favor of allowing the FD, the FBI to go in this particular route, at least until it turns out that there's something about that's happening here, which is really dreadfully wrong. And we don't know. 
Uh, so what we do is we get this thing before a special master, which is a perfectly appropriate strategy whenever you're trying to do document intensive work of one kind or another, which is going to slow this thing up even further. Uh, the thing that I find most interesting about this is if I were a Republican, in some sense, I would cheer this investigation on if I thought that it would get Trump out of the race, because I think he's capable of ruining the midterms for the Republican and trying to run again in 2024, which would throw everything completely out of whack. On the other hand, when it first came down, I said, oh, my God, he's now surely going to run again, which I really don't want to happen at this particular point in time. Uh, so I think everything is still in limbo. Uh, my guess is that it was probably an overbroad search that they're trying to engage in, uh, that they probably did not take sufficient care to worry about executive privilege document. Uh, I don't know what the decision process is inside the FBI, but the kind of slow rib drab leaks seem to me to be a general mistake in an investigation of this sort. Uh, so I would guess that it's a black mark, a disadvantage uh, to both teams in the way this thing has started to handle. I don't think when they're mutual mistakes like this that you're going to get yourself into a constitutional crisis. And I think that now that it's gone a month and it's simmering down, I think it's not all that likely, given the special master, that this will be the dominant issue that's going to take place in the 2022 congressional elections. And I'll leave it at that. John, you've worked in positions that require handling classified information, improbably enough so have I. <laughs> what? What what <laughs> what does really what is, what is a lay person? Yeah, the speechwriters got them too. We had burn bags. Um oh what what does it what does a lay person need to know to understand the stakes here and try to judge yes. whether Trump acted inappropriately, whether the Justice Department acted inappropriately? Uh, I think as Richard suggests, both sides have made mistakes and acted inappropriately. I do think that Justice Department had legal grounds to get this search warrant. The question is whether it made good uh, sense, whether it was a wise decision, which I think it was not. Uh, one, uh, and also the other thing to mention is that this is not just about classified information. In fact, the three laws that uh, allegedly have been violated here, which create the probable cause for the search, are not specifically about classified information. So the three laws are uh, you can't um, mishandle or take uh, national defense information. And then the second one is you can't take away government papers. doesn't matter if they're classified or not that you're not authorized to have. And the third one is, and this is the one that really creates a legal jeopardy for Trump, is you're not supposed to obstruct uh, investigations like this. You're, not, you're supposed to return the documents when you're asked for them. You're supposed to hide them. You're not supposed to try to destroy them or mutilate them in any way. So this is not a first-of-its-kind problem with Trump. You know, past presidents, and most famously Nixon, have had fights with the government about what to do about the papers that they generated as president. Uh, after Nixon, there was a law passed called the Presidential Records Act, and it says basically all the papers produced by presidents while they're in office belong to the United States. And when the president leaves office, they go to the United States and they go to the archives, and they're eventually supposed to be deposited in the libraries and used. And Troy, you should know this since you just came out with a biography of a president, so you must have, I hope, used his archives quite uh, intensively. Use a what was this obscure president you wrote about? What was his name? Cleveland <laughs> was, Grover. Was, was his name Grover? It remember. was Grover Cleveland. And let me <laughs> let me tell you something, John. The issues surrounding 19th century presidential papers are not these. The issues is trying to find which cushions they're under. <laughs> yeah, the interesting thing is before Nixon, the presidential 
papers belonged to the president. And so they could do, they took them with them and they could do what they wanted. And so some presidents destroyed them. Some presidents, like I would say Jefferson, we have a pretty good record. So Trump was supposed to turn all the papers over. He did not. So this started a two year struggle between the government and Trump about returning these papers. And Trump returned some of them, 15 boxes of them in January. Um, they returned a few more. And then this is the problem. The FBI visited in June and uh, they t- the Trump lawyers turned over some, but then said that they had turned over all of them. And as we now know, that's not true. We saw, and this is really where the FBI, I think, is really playing politics. They really stuck the knife into Trump by publishing that photograph of the classified documents, made it look like they sit around on Trump's floor. Obviously, they Trump's office floor. Obviously, they put them there for the photograph uh, just to record that they were found there. But I'm sure Trump wasn't just leaving them on the ground. I mean, that's what Troy's, I'm sure, office looked like while he was writing his biography of Grover Cleveland. <laughs> this, did lo- this did look like one of those drug bust pictures, yes, one of those asset forfeiture yes, shots. That's what it is. Do so you really the- think it was staged? John, yeah, of course it was, actually. If it's staged, it then that turns yeah. out to be a very no, no, serious course. form of defamation. Of course it was staged. Uh, I oh mean, my in fact, God. the FBI didn't claim it wasn't staged. It's pretty clear that... Then that's, in that's fact, uh, what the Immoral. FBI, Disgusting. So, <laughs> so what, they, they fooled me, by the way. Well, that didn't take a lot. <laughs> I, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I so what happened? entirely. That's the point. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot to fool me. So, so let me just briefly discuss, discuss Troy's other question about what kind of mm-hmm. documents these are. So, there are um, a lot. Every piece of paper that Trump produced as president in his official capacity is subject is a government document subject to the Presidential Records Act and should be turned over uh, under those laws I just mentioned. Classified documents are a subset of presidential records. Here, of course, they can also have classified documents which aren't presidential records. And so, there's three. Uh, levels of classified documents. There's uh, what's called confidential, and then there's called secret, and then the highest one is top secret. And then uh, within top secret, there's even super, super special top secret, believe it or not, which is called um, SCI, secure compartmentalized information, which is even more restricted than top secret. Now, if you, um, as you saw in that FBI photo, every classified document has to have a cover sheet uh, that's very clear and obvious. And those are the ones you see them there um, to make sure everyone knows when you see it, oh, that's classified document. I should be handling it carefully. And you can see from those cover sheets that uh, President Trump took away with him, not just confidential, which you know it's the lowest form of classified information, but he took away some documents that were the very, very highest form of classified information. These are classified information that if revealed would potentially reveal the identities of secret agents abroad, would reveal uh, electronic means we have of intercepting other countries' communications, might reveal uh, nuclear weapons information. So he has some of that. We don't know exactly how many pages of which or what. The FBI has said that uh, they found um, about 100 individual documents, not pages, just documents that were classified. That's an extraordinary number. Um, that sounds like a lot more than just got mixed up with the mementos I took out of the office along with, I mean, these are also weird things on the inventory list of search, clothing, like they took some clothing with them. I don't know what that is. They took um, books, it looks like Trump loves 
to take uh, newspaper and magazine clippings about himself, because that seems to be the greatest proportion of things that they found. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so that's the problem for Trump is he you can tell they found those documents. He's in violation of the statute. Uh, so the search clearly was legal. The question just is whether was it whether it was a good idea for the FBI and the Justice Department to use this surprise non-consensual search with a search warrant for the first time ever in American history of a former president based on the claim for the first only other time in American history other than Nixon that a president might have there was probable cause to think a president might have violated the law. Sorry for R- the long. <laughs> Richard, Richard, what did you make of the argument? It's faded away a little bit now, but in the early days of this, you heard from a lot of Donald Trump's defenders, I believe from Trump himself, that this was essentially moot because he was arguing that he was essentially declassifying documents at will. Uh, that the, the very idea of him having taken the documents rendered them declassified. Well, I think the answer is he's not allowed to unilaterally declassify declassify anything. Uh, The way in which this system works, he has to go through a whole series of hoops before this can happen. And if you think about it, that's part and parcel of the same scheme that you're putting into place with the Presidential Records Act. What you're saying is that when somebody leaves office, he's a potential threat if he kind of goes around as a loose cannon, and that the particular forms of protections that you're giving to documents cannot be taken away by a president who wants to remove them anymore then they could say that he could say that these are not official documents when they've been done. Uh, So I think, in effect, the reason that that document dropped out uh, is that it was wrong. And I think it was also suggested by some that, you know, uh, the president has equal access to the documents with anybody else, so he's allowed to keep them in his possession. But if you look at the Presidential Records Act, and I've never looked at it the way John has with that kind of detail, but it makes it pretty clear that there's the following compromise. Uh, They get to keep them in NARA, that is the archive record, and the president's supposed to have them made available to him, uh, which means that obviously you're going to have to work some kind of an adjustment to and from. Uh, so all in all, it seems that the reason that these arguments have faded away is, is that he has made a mistake. What is so utterly incomprehensible about this is Donald Trump loves to live dangerously. And so the question is, why is he keeping these things? Indeed, one of the things that's so unearthing about this is suppose what he did was he duly returned every one of those documents on one as for having made copies of them for his own file. That would clearly be a complete violation of the whole sense of the act. And yet, as best I can tell, there's no mechanism involved that would allow one to figure that out. And so now you just spin it out a little bit further. He gives, or the ones he gave back, he still has copies of them. You don't know about it. Are they entitled to run another search to figure out whether he's concealing document? And this would be a much more serious offense because it would mean that he consciously is trying to play games. There's also the Obama example. We know that he took a huge amount of documentation with him. Indeed, if I understand that his so-called presidential library, not his presidential center, is going to be a visual online operation. And it turns out that all these documents, at least some of them, are going to be made ready for the world. I've not heard anybody say whether or not he has taken documents that don't belong to him. So in addition to everything else that's going on here, uh, there is certainly going to be an equal justice issue if it turns out and may well be the case that one former president is treated with kid gloves while the other former president gets slammed and it's done in a political arrangement. I mean, what John said is that, you know, he didn't think you could beat the search warrant, but that it's politically improved 
Putin. My own judgment about this, if you got the documents back and there were no harm to national security and you were convinced that there were no further plays, what you would probably want to do is to make it a political issue. But I don't know if you'd want to sue under these circumstances. But as we say, prosecutorial discretion is one of the nightmarish topics. Everybody knows that you have to have it. And nobody except John, you knows exactly how the principles operate. <laughs> That's the way I like it. Can I can I just make one uh, amendment yeah. to what Richard said is um, I actually think of the president can declassify by himself. The question is, does he how do you record it? So the problem is that the way the Trump people acted, it doesn't sound like Trump even thought of declassifying. So the Supreme Court has said that classification actually does stem directly from the president's authority as commander in chief and chief executive um, there's this, it's called um, uh, Egan versus Secretary of the Navy. The problem is, how do you pulling rank? Yeah, yeah. How do you record it? Yeah, like, how do you write it down? Do you have to make a record of it? Can Trump just say, you know, to the air by himself, oh, anytime I take a document to Mar a Lago, it's automatically declassified? Um, that doesn't seem good enough because there's no record of it. The problem here, though, is that when, so, so I mentioned there were two other times. Once Trump left office, where his people turned over documents, you know, in the belief that they were complying with the subpoena, complying with the initial request, and they treated them like they were classified documents. Apparently, they, you know, kept them in a room they said was pretty secure. They handed them in the off. There's this weird way you have to handle classified documents. You have to have it like in a double sealed envelope. It's a very complicated system. Mm -hmm. Apparently, they did that. <laughs> so the Trump's lawyers were treating them as if they were classified documents. Um, they, uh, you know, the, the FBI said we're going to come down and get the documents for you because they're classified. And the Trump lawyers, like, said apparently, yeah, that's a good idea. So even if Trump had that power, I don't see any record that he exercised it. But John, I, this has got to be a little bit crazy. I mean, if we're having a complicated scheme. Uh, in which we're trying to make sure that the president, after he leaves office, doesn't take over. It intuitively just strikes me as wrong as to say the way what to do it is to write a letter and it would say, Dear Mr. Biden, I'm happy to let you know that I have taken all of these documents, have declassified them, and now kept them. Now, the other way of thinking of it is, sure, you could declassify them, but you said that declassification doesn't allow you to keep them. Uh, so right. it may well be you're entitled to declassify the documents, but the issue is whether you're entitled to retain possession. And somewhere along the line, I think what he has to do is to show that he's entitled to possession. And what is he doing? I mean, you sit there and you say to yourself, he's letting these things sit there. There's no evidence that he's used them. He's probably not writing his memoirs yet uh, in one form or another. So well, why does he Troy, just... Because Troy doesn't appear to be writing any, so I don't think... No, I mean, yes, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, yeah. look, whatever we do, when Troy writes his next book, A Comparison Between Grover Cleveland and Donald Trump... <laughs> God help me. We will see that, some evidence... You spoiled the surprise. That's the first book. That's the one that's coming out right now. Uh, well, I hope it is. I'm... <laughs> Uh, so to, to me, it's what it is. I think Donald Trump is, is a little bit like Bill Clinton, in which it's more fun to live dangerously and to keep yourself in the public eye than it is to do something which is safe and sensible. Um, I don't think he's ever done anything as a president that one would live to ruin regret, given that attitude. Uh, but if you want to feed the fires of people who say he's got this real irrational set of impulse, let's let him behave this way near official kinds of problems. And I think we'll do things. I mean, I hope the good 
good thing that would come out of this is he bows out of the race, gives his endorsement to somebody and nobody, and essentially doesn't try to ruin and dominate the wavelengths. I do think he is an egomaniac, and he would rather be insulted in public than ignored. John, Richard um, alluded to this earlier. So the judge today, the day that we're recording this, granted Trump's request for a special master in this case. Can you explain the significance of this? What is a special master? It's a, it's a thing we hear every five years and all try to scramble and act like we know what it is. And why is it appropriate or not, as the case may be in this case? Can, can we point out that this is one of the last uses of the word master that the woke forces have not eliminated from Give our it vocabulary? Six weeks. <laughs> yeah, so, special mistress, go ahead. <laughs> so uh, in terms of substance, I don't think the special master will change anything. In terms of process, it has the effect of just delaying, you know, drawing this out a little longer. So a special master, uh, you can appoint one under the federal rules of civil procedure, Usually, it's for something that's complicated. So, if there's some kind of, you know, like sprawling, massive litigation, you know, we're the kind that Richard enjoys, you know, massive torts happening, you know, some pill that makes people sick all around the country simultaneously. No, it's called a vaccine. (laughs) That's a special master. um, Or you uh, have, so the standard is only, and I think it's met here, the standard is only that the case presents what are called exceptional circumstances. I, mean, I think this is, an, this is a case with more than one exceptional circumstance. So it's very easy for a judge to appoint a special master. Basically, what the special master then does is they kind of act like a baby judge. They kind of hear both sides. Mm. They can make initial, like almost draft opinions that then go to the, the actual judge, judge, the district judge here, who would then grant, uh, you know, adopt them or change them or reject them. They're, so they're kind of an assistant to the judge, but they have the power to make a lot of sort of preliminary decisions. So in this case, if you read the decision, so two things. One, it's really easy for a judge to appoint a special master. It doesn't really hurt anybody to have a special master. And that's apparently what this judge was asking at oral arguments last week, which was, what's the harm if I get a special master, especially because we have all these complicated classified information questions, plus attorney-client privilege questions, plus executive privilege issues. Many of them are unprecedented and have yet to be decided by the Supreme Court. The second thing, though, is I'm not sure whether it really changes much. It will slow things down in that the judge also said that DOJ has to stop looking at the documents and can't use them for its investigations until the special master has a chance to review them. So you're going to have a fight over who the special master is, and then that person has to be have a classification clearance. And then that person has to look at all the documents. I think I read there's at least 1,100 pages of documents to review. Uh, and then has to draft an opinion and make a recommendation. So I think that has the effect of pushing a lot of this uh, in the end, uh, at least out another month or two. And I think that's what Trump really needs. Trump needs time because I think he's getting very bad advice. I think he should have uh, you know, this gives them the chance to reach a deal with the Justice Department to make this case go away. I think justice should also be interested in making this case go away. So maybe the special master, it's a good stalling tactic that gives everybody some breathing room so that they can reach a deal here and make this fade away. Although I'm not sure either side really will take that advice and take advantage well, of that opportunity. Yeah, I that, have I was yeah. just going to ask, and this will probably get to what you were going to say anyway, Richard, I, and I will present this as a as a jump ball, but it probably makes sense for you to start, Richard, because John Thank just kind of teased this for us. 
where do you see this going? I mean, what what does the Justice Department do going forward? And to what degree, if any, does their calculus have to change if Trump announces a presidential campaign? Well, I mean, the first thing I think that's likely to happen is that we will keep this in a relatively news void until the election. Um, There's a very complicated arrangement. When you appoint somebody as a special master, what happens is the district cup becomes a minimum court of appeals. So this guy decides something, has to write an opinion one way or another. If you like it on both sides, you could agree. If not, you could go back to the judge and say, here's the particular principle. He's not going to look himself at all the documents although he's entitled to do so. What he's likely to do is to say, I think you have the wrong standard in this particular case. Go back and get it again. There might even be, although usually not, some emergency basis in which you get appealed to an appellate court highly unlikely. So I think, in effect, the thing has been there. Uh, The reason we have special masters institutionally has nothing to do with Donald Trump, right? It has to do with the fact uh, that uh, these district court judges are handling huge caseloads. And the moment you get document-intensive issues, what it does is it makes it impossible for them to run the rest of their docket when it comes to trials and all sorts of other orders that they have to make. And so this is a kind of delegation down subject to review, which is allowed to expand the scope and authority. Um, They did a special master here. Uh, John knows as well as I do, they're beasts known as magistrate judges, which have enormous power, who often are chosen to do exactly this kind of work and make these kinds of decisions. Can I just throw in there, this magistrate judge screwed up by granting such a broad search warrant. So nobody trusts the magistrate judges right now. And you're right. I mean, as we say, uh, nobody's covered himself with glory in this particular case, right? The judge did wrong. The FBI hasn't done so great. Mr. Trump and his lawyers, God protect us and so forth. So uh, it is going to slow this stuff down. And John's right. They could always reach some kind of a deal on this stuff. Uh, If the FBI gives away too much, uh, it's going to be difficult. Now, the other thing I think is that just slowing it down and I think it's important that we understand this, reduces the likelihood that there'll be a criminal trial of one kind or another prosecution. Uh, Merrick Garland is known to be, so I am told by people who observed him more closely than I, immensely indecisive on the way in which he goes. And this has taken a very long time to moot. Now another whole set of complications are going to be put in. He is going to be hit by titanic forces on both sides inside a very democratic justice department. And, And my guess is he's going to slow this down a little bit further. I do think, in effect, it is a real national disaster to try and run this thing out as a trial when you're trying to have everything else done in the nation. And amongst the other things is that you're going to get the equal justice stuff. Why are you slow walking Hunter Biden? They will start to ask on the Republican side. And I mean, if you're trying to talk about cases where you have probable cause to do something, you don't even need the search warrant because you have the laptop and all the information that it contains. And so in addition to everything else, the moment you do this and slow it down, it's going to sort of raise treatment about equal stuff on both sides. If I'm not mistaken, there was some Republican who said that Joe Biden ought to be impeached in uh, 2023, if we gain the House of Representatives, because the way he bollocks up things in Afghanistan and so forth, this is not wise as far as I'm concerned. Um, but it turns out if Mr. Biden, in fact, has been involved in some kind of shady and criminal activity with his son, um, and it continues even after his presidency, well, uh, that's a crime and it may be a high crime and misdemeanor. I don't want us to go there. I don't think this country can survive multiple inconsistent criminal trials and impeachments and so forth. 
I think it ought to be resolved in a political way. I think that sending it into a special master, which slows down the momentum, has to be treated as changing the odds somewhat against the possibility of a Garland indictment of President Trump. Okay, guys. So next thing that I want to turn you to. So we have this sweeping debt removal plan coming out of the Biden administration, student debt, for giving up to $10,000 in college debt for people making $125,000 or less, up to $20,000 if they were Pell Grant recipients. And notably, of course, this done through executive action rather than via legislation. So Richard, I know you're champing at the bit about this one. Can you explain the theory by which the Biden administration thinks it has this power? And then give us your reaction to it. Well, I actually have a column coming out. Um, I did read the memo, which was prepared by Chris Schroeder, who's a, a very able professor at Duke. I thought it was one of the most dreadful documents that I've ever read in my entire professional career. Uh, and there are many things that are wrong with it. But what we do is you first start off with the title. Um, propaganda titles normally are irrelevant to the way when you reach statutes. Uh, but this statute, for those of you who want to know, is called the HEROES Act, uh, which is an acronym for (laughs) the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Student Aid Act. That is, in order to get the acronym, you're almost non-grammatical in the way (laughs) you talk about the particular statute. Uh, But what they then do is they kind of, you do that, these are heroes, you're trying to figure out who counts as a hero under this particular statute. And in general, when they start talking about heroes, they're talking about things which involve wars on the one hand, rescue operations and stuff of that sort. And so what you have to do is you have to assume that a lingering student debt crisis is of the same magnitude of 9-11 in the way in which you deal with it. And one of the ironies is when they write their White House statement about what's going on here, they say, now that we're done with the COVID situation and people are trying to dig themselves out from the rubble. Now what we're going to do is invoke an emergency relief act. Uh, They give almost no serious discussion as to what it is that counts as a relief. And they do point to the decision that was made by all people about Donald Trump declaring that this was an emergency in early March 2020 to last for a grand total of two periods, and which allowed you to defer interest and some other kinds of conditions associated with this debt. And then they assume that Biden, without even declaring an emergency, could kind of piggy back on that earlier order, which has been defunct two years, and do something which is 10,000 times as large on the grounds that somehow or other they have a right to waive the debt. They, the statute doesn't even says that. What it says, I'm going to read it to you now, may waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to student division program. This means if you just read it as an ordinary mission, you're late in sending your application, we could waive that. You managed to misfile a form, we could waive that. I don't see anything in that particular statement uh, which says, by the way, the secretary may waive or modify any debt and release it at his sheer whim, regardless of its total amount. So that's the first problem. Uh, I'm just, I won't go through the whole thing because it's too painful. But uh, the larger problem is uh, there have been two major cases that have come down in this particular term, uh, which have basically indicated a complete change in attitudes uh, that we are supposed to take um, with respect to the use of administrative power. The maxim, which dates back to Justice Scalia a long time ago, says that the Congress does not put elephants in mouse holes, meaning that you don't take relatively small provisions in the body of a large statute, read it in such an advanced fashion that you transform the world. 
uh, which is what they did. Why do they do it in this fashion? Well, they don't even quote the whole section when they say that you can make the waivers unbound. They only quote one portion of it, and the rest of it is all about individual waivers and how you calculate them. So they don't even give you the full statute. But the two cases are the NFIB against the OSHA case, in which they said the Biden administration went way out over its skis when it tried to have this vaccine mandate that it was going to impose on every workplace with 100 people or more. And it was a pretty strong decision saying this is the kind of major questions that we're trying to face here and we're not going to allow this to be swamped over by chevron deference which in this case means misreading a statute and then more recently there's there's been this huge battle over the west virginia against the epa case on the questions to whether or not the phrase a best system of mission reductions that's been shown to be successful or demonstrable is in fact allowing you to shift from uh, essentially fossil fuels to uh, use the, of, of wind and solar renewables to take this over. And the Supreme Court again said exactly the same thing. You just cannot take delegation to go that far. Now, if they in this particular case had tried to distinguish these two cases, you say, well, nice try, no cigar. But these cases are both ignored in this particular rule, which is utterly incomprehensible, I think, when everything that you start to have here. Then, since they didn't bother to quote the whole statute on points that were relevant, uh, it's bad. And the final point I've made is that, you know, score one for the Trump administration when the similar issue was raised in uh, January of 2008. 21, just before I left office, Betsy DeVos said, you know, we wrote this thing and we just don't think we have that kind of power. It's a very powerful memo. And the efforts to distinguish it in this case, I thought were rather pathetic, in fact. And so I just can't believe that this thing is going to survive in law unless it turns out that the Supreme Court justices have some sort of an aneurysm and have forgotten everything <laughs> that they managed to say uh, within this particular year. And I assume that this thing will be, John, I think it's going to be cert-worthy. I think we'll get up there very quickly. And I can't believe how they can sustain this. And my guess is any district court worth its salt, Democrat or Republican, North or South, blue or red, is going to have to give a preliminary injunction because it's very likely on the merits that this thing simply won't work. This bird won't fly. John, to that point, uh, I want to give you the same question as Richard. I want to hear your reaction to the whole scheme that the administration has put together, but with, with two additional caveats, I suppose. The conservatives who are repulsed by this I've noticed two traits amongst them. Number one is they feel the same kind of confidence that Richard just expressed there, which is that this thing is not going to survive close scrutiny. But number two, there does seem to be some anxiety over who actually has standing to bring a challenge. So could you walk us through that? Yes. Yeah, right. I actually agree with Richard pretty much, except I don't see, I'm having a hard time seeing how it gets into court. Uh, uh, So, yeah, I mean, Richard doesn't doesn't really believe in standing. I, I I'm do. not sure whether I do or not, <laughs> but according to the court's definition of standing, I'm just, I don't know whether it gets through. But uh, let me just say briefly, this was the opinion where this came out of uh, is my old office at the Justice Department, the Office of Legal Counsel. And uh, you can tell they are half-hearted about this. And part of the reason why is because the Biden administration went too far. If they had, if they had limited their program, to we are going to delay the obligation to pay back student loans. Uh, you know, we'll have a moratorium, just like they did with the evictions. We'll have a moratorium on student loan payments until the end of the COVID emergency. 
I think they would have a much, much better claim. And, you know, the, the statutory authority says the secretary of education, if there's a national emergency or war, right, can modify or waive financial assistance obligations. So that, and, and we look at the legislative history, you see members of the Congress talking about, well, you know, this is passed during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And so they said, well, if someone's called up to serve in Afghanistan or Iraq, they shouldn't have to keep making loan payments while they're over there. So the secretary of education can just suspend them until they get back. That seems pretty reasonable to me. Uh, the two problems here for the Biden theory is he canceled them. He didn't just suspend the loan amounts. And the statute says that you can only modify or waive the payments so as the person is in no worse position financially because of the national emergency or war. The problem with Biden's program, obviously, is that everyone's better off, right? They're not, they're not made, you know, the, the idea was just, you know, you come back from the war or Hurricane Katrina is over and then you resume the payments as if they hadn't happened. Here, Biden has just wiped out the debt entirely. That seems flatly in contradiction with the statutory language. And you read the OLC opinion, the Justice Department opinion, at this point, they just kind of give up. And they wave their hands and say, oh, we're sure the Secretary of Education will you know, make sure this provision is not violated. And so the opinion doesn't even, yeah, the opinion doesn't even try to explain how the cancellation of right, all of these uh, student loans are consistent with that statute. And if it is, then the president has to fall back on some kind of emergency authority. But as Richard points out, the Supreme Court has already rejected this claim twice now with the vaccine mandate executive order and the eviction on evictions. On that one too. Uh, That's order. the third. So there's, one. yeah. Yeah, and then there's another. Then the other issue is this major questions doctrine, which Richard also mentioned, which is the Supreme Court has said that if you're going to do something that has a major impact on the economy or society uh, by rule, by administrative action, you have to show it's either clearly in the text of the statute and that Congress thought about it. And actually, this is interesting. The uh, opinion that OLC issues says we find no evidence of Congress discussing the possibility that we would right, cancel all the loans at all. They, they actually provide lots of evidence to show the court how to strike this down under the major questions doctrine. I don't <laughs> think they realized they were doing this, but it's actually, I would, if I was writing, as a drafting a Supreme Court, I would just quote this policy opinion for proof that it violates the major questions doctrine. Here's the problem. Who could sue? So ah. the standing, standing doctrine, you know, is clearly uh, set out in this case called Lujan, which was about uh, funding for the asset mm -hmm. for um, a dam in Egypt. The problem is you have to show uh, three things. You have to show injury in fact. You have to show that your injury was caused by government action. And you have to show that the court can redress your injury, can come up with it. And this is a problem here because the court has also said you have to have some, uh, injury in fact means that something specialized or individual happened to you that taxpayers can't sue just because of the claim you're misusing taxpayer money. In fact, there's several cases the court has rejected what's called taxpayer standing. It's also rejected congressional standing. The members of Congress can sue individually. Uh, you would, in order for Congress to have standing to sue, the body of Congress as a whole must vote to sue, which ain't going to happen here. So who's actually harmed, especially individually? I've been trying to think of it. Maybe 
I don't know, maybe if there are servicing companies that service the loans, yeah. they um, might because they could say, oh, well, we don't make any money collecting on it anymore. Although they're the they're people with an economic interest not to sue the government here because their business depends on future loan future loan programs brought by the government. So I couldn't I, I'm having a hard time figuring out who could sue uh, to bring this case to the Supreme Court under current standing doctrine. John, unfortunately, is, is, is hit a very strong point. I have spent most of my press with Katrina saying that the single biggest blunder in constitutional law were the decisions back in 1923 in Frothingham and Mellon and Massachusetts and Mellon, which put the special interest test into play. Um, it turns out standing in law and equity, the equity part of the Constitution is designed to allow individuals who represent the larger group as a whole to sue in their representative capacity. And if they prevail, uh, when there is some money that is recovered or some injunction is given, give the body to give them the thing. That's the way corporate derivative suits are done, charitable actions, everything is else that done. If standing to do this is given to anybody who's a member of a local municipality and so forth. And so the decision of Justice Sutherland, followed by Justice Scalia, has to rank as two of the most thick-headed decisions ever made uh, by anybody because but, there's not a single other court anywhere in you, the world. Richard, you, you agree that um, in order for someone to be able to bring this case, you would have to overrule those. Past no, I, I mean, I said, look, because I can't see how it works. I, I if mean, you accept standing law is actually good, then that makes it really hard for someone I, I to bring this case. I think there is a way to overrule just the tiny part of it. Okay, not the whole thing. Uh, but first of all, I would overrule the whole thing. I have said my entire life, this is the dumbest beyond dumb doctrine. This is the single most major question that we have. And so we don't give them any deference whatsoever when it comes to look at the statutory scheme. And oh, by the way, we're not going to look at the statutory scheme at all, because this is so unimportant and trivial that we don't have standing to do it. It's a political issue. I mean, give me a life is what I would say about this. Uh, what John mentioned is the thing about con congressional standing, and uh, it's not congressional standing. Any house itself could have standing. And with respect to the situation in the Obamacare, uh, the House of Representatives sued. And what they did is they claimed that they had standing to make sure that money that was supposed to be going to the Treasury and then to be appropriated by the Treasury uh, to individual programs was observed. And what the Biden, what the Obama administration had done was to engage in a little scam. Uh, they said, "Is well, we're not going to put these monies into the treasuries. We'll just simply divert them to something else. And nobody's going to protest about it if they have to pay the money because we're going to give them a very nice discount and settle the case if they let us give the money to our favorite charities, all of whom could never get the money directly through Congress. And I actually wrote several letters at the time saying I thought this was another one of these outrageous dodges. And I think it's true. So the modification I think that you make might do this is the appropriations clause clearly means that somebody in Congress has the power to do this. What happened is the memo was very sloppy uh, when it said that the appropriations clause doesn't deal without dealing with any of the earlier cases on this. And the modification I think that you could make is if it turns out that the majority party is in league with the president and is not going to be an effective representation of the cause of action and has to be brought, and then somebody who's in the opposite can do it, because otherwise we get this ridiculous kind of situation uh, that the majority of Congress can flout the constitutional arrangement by simply being in the same party as the president. And so I would think that the modification that you would make, and I would put quite passionately for, is that anybody who's in opposition to this in the Congress um, 
who knows that they couldn't possibly get a winning vote, can go there to say, look, it has to come back to this political body. Otherwise, what happens is we get this completely farcical and crazy arrangement where the most scandalous, outrageous, billion-dollar, trillion-dollar appropriation is there. And by the way, I mean, just to make sure just how bad this is, uh, the money it is generally estimated is going to be, oh, half a billion dollars or trillion dollars. But what's that amongst friends? But remember, the Obama, by the way, Biden administration is now proposing slowing down the schedules for the repayment of student loans as they exist, which will completely wreck the program. And nobody's going to be able to challenge that either, because the way in which the standing argument works, as John puts it, is the only people who can sue are those people who have special hurt. And then you're dealing with the modern government. The problem isn't that it's only going after people. The problem is that in order to keep political power, it makes nice with its friends and gives them huge amounts of money. So the political realities which were relatively unimportant with the the situation when you're talking about the matrimonial stuff that was at stake in the payments back in 1923 has become essentially the major open wound. And I would argue pretty passionately that change in circumstances has to have the following proposition. No standing doctrine can be applied if there is a major question. You know that phrase, John, right? Um, Which would otherwise not be challenged by anybody. And that you have, I mean, and I would do that. I am quite prepared, free of charge, to argue this case before any court that <laughs> wants gonna to do lose, it. You're going to lose, Richard. But I, I, I don't let, think let I'm going to lose. Me, I mean, I might, but this would be why, frightening. Let me explain why um, Scalia and the conservatives, right? Because this is a doctrine that conservatives have really pushed for, not liberals. I mean, Justice They've Brennan, for example, thought standing was a great mistake, too. But I, listening to Richard, I think there is a way to, now he's persuaded me. There's a way to bring this case, but not exactly the way he thinks. So let me try this. Uh, out. So I first, accept your argument. Sign on. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, so first is like the reason why Scalia and Lujan says we need to have tough standing doctrine and why all the conservatives voted with him is because what he doesn't want the courts to be is a forum for just fighting out public policy disputes. And so if standing becomes too easy. Then every time the government does something, anything, someone will come in and sue on behalf of the taxpayers. And so he was worried that that would grind government to a halt, but also be put the judiciary in the position of being a super legislature that just reviews everything. And I don't know, Richard, wrong, you don't agree with that. But oh, that's, I think it's terrible. But the conservatives terrible. on the court do. So God I don't, I don't look, I don't see these conservatives on the court, the six of them wanting to overturn standing doctrine because I think they agree with Scalia on this. Several of them were on the court when Scalia and then the court continues actually to be pretty vigilant about standing, but here's how I would do it. And this is Richard's view on the appropriations clause. So this is interesting. The, the government, the Biden administration said no one has standing to challenge this as a misuse of the appropriations power uh, because this is not about money going out of the treasury, which is an appropriation. This is about money coming into the treasury, which is not an appropriation, according to the Justice Department. So you could make a claim that that's not accurate. But what I would say is, um, should the House change hands and Republicans be in charge, they could vote to bring suit. He's right. Richard's right about that. And I think what they could do is say, we have a right to bring suit because the student program depends on continuing future appropriations. It's not like there's no more student loans are going to be granted. This, this program exists and continues to give out student loans. So the House could say, we want a ruling on whether this student loan forgiveness thing is constitutional or not. 
because it affects the appropriations we are making right now for mm-hmm. student loans. That might be enough to get, it's close, but I think that might be enough to get in. And then you could get a judgment on whether the cancellation itself is legal. I, maybe that's, that, that, that that's not bad, Richard. That's that's very creative. I give well, John, it. I give, you trying, t- I give I, that to you. I give that to you. I, John, no one, I mean, I'm happy say, to no be one, pre- No one has said that in any of the discussions. I think about this program. No one has come up with this idea. Well, I, I mean, but now I want to go back to what you said before. As I said, I regard the Scalia opinion on this issue and the early opinions as some of the dumbest opinions in the history of Western civilization. I mean, one of the great things about Nino Scalia is he actually knew no legal history, so he never could quite explain why the words or equity are in the Article 3. I might also add, as a matter of strict construction, you should note that the word standing is not contained in Article 3, right? It's simply standing is not in a, a standing it's not, is not a consistent thing. with originalism. That is true. There's- well, so I mean, so the originalism point, they come back this, but what they said is, oh my God, it gets us into policy judgment. No, this is not an argument about an advisory opinion, nor is it an argument about the wisdom of the case. The whole point about this particular kind of suit is that the claim is that this is ultra virus beyond the power that was delegated by Congress. And now that there is this increasing concern with separation of powers that sort of permeates all of these opinions, what happens is we have to overrule the standing doctrine to the extent that it is used as a way to circumvent the separation of powers limitation in the constitution. I mean, this is not a question of asking whether or not uh, you have standing as an ordinary citizen to say that the yellow bird Wally bee is going to be a protected species under the statute of endangered species act, uh, because that's the kind of question that's been delegated. Uh, but you remember what the question was in Lujan. It was the question about the extraterritorial effect of the Endangered Species Act, where the United States can't control the site, but can in fact try to limit or to warn uh, or to restrict importation of goods that are made overseas. And so the extraterritorial effect stuff is a straight legal question of how far does this thing go? And it's an issue that comes up all the time. I mean, one of the problems about Justice Scalia is he was a man who was extremely confident in his judgment. And when he was good, he was very, very good. Think of what he said in Morrison and Olson. But when he was bad, he was like the little girl with a curl right in the middle of his forehead. He was just horrid. And what's happened is there's a whole group of justices. Wait, 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 wait a second. What's wrong with the girl with a curl in the front of her head? When she was good, she was very, very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. That is the one sentence summary of a lot of conservative jurisprudence on this stuff. Look, I mean, I just finished a, a long article on the Dormant Commerce Clause, in which, again, you see Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas saying, this is beyond the power of courts to do so. And why is that? Because you have to balance interests, they are telling you, and courts can't do that. Well, 99% of constitutional law is balancing the requirements of a particular text against some police power claim that, yes, you may have the right to speak, but on the other hand, you can't use it to commit a crime. You can't do it to disrupt the operation of a trial. You can't do it to release trade secrets involving military stuff to the world at large. Uh, The American law, if you take out balancing as a relevant consideration in constitutional law, you've basically killed the subject. And what's happened is strict textualism um, is say, okay, we have to have an accurate reading of the text. I certainly agree with that. But the entire history 
John's favorite subject, starting in Roman law, going through the medieval period, every single serious person who wrote about statutory construction and told the modern conservatives understood that the key question was figuring how the general principles of jurisprudence under a natural law system created a series of the exceptions to the basic rule. And they forgot all of that or when they did all of this stuff. So, I mean, you know, you hear all of this stuff coming around, well, we need a brand new constitution in order to make things work right. No, what we need to do is to understand how the original thing was put together. And once we understand that, uh, then the answer ought to be, it would be a shame for everybody to take a judicial fiction made out of whole cloth and use it as a tool to allow a lawless president to abuse his authority on the basis of a memo uh, which should not be accepted with a passing grade by a first year student. Okay. In the last few moments that we have, I want to turn you guys to some of the fallout on the abortion case, namely these tensions that we are now seeing in terms of jurisdictional questions, who has what powers where. So the promise of the decision in Dobbs was the abortion questions were going to go back to the states. They were going to be able to figure out how to handle this, but it's not always that cut and dried. So you didn't say that, by the way, Troy, you said the political processes. Yes, was, I'm just I'm just paraphrasing the sort of popular interpretation of this. Yeah. So we have these complications emerging now. And you had, for instance, the Biden administration bring suit against Idaho because the state had one of these trigger laws that became operative after the Dobbs ruling that prohibited abortion except in cases of rape, incest, or threats to the life of the mother. Life turns out to be the operative word here because the U.S. Justice Department sued over this arguing that because the provisions don't cover the health of the mother, just the life, that it conflicts with a federal statute that requires ER treatment for women who are having health emergencies, which could include, in some cases, abortions that are necessary to protect the mother's health. So, John, I will start with you here. Who do we think is more likely to win the turf war here? So I think the, uh, I think the Biden administration is probably going to win because of the if, if they are right that that is a condition that's placed on the, rec- the receipt of federal funds that anyone who rec- any hospital receiving federal funds has has to right, conduct medical procedures and it includes the uh, common exceptions to abortion bans you know rape incest and life of the mo- life and health of the mother mm-hmm. then then you know the only defense to that is that the government cannot force you through the spending clause to do something unconstitutional. And it doesn't seem to me that following that condition is something that's unconstitutional. Now, a court could say that the Medicare, Medicaid condition right, for emergency rooms and so on is not the same as right, the exception to the uh, ban on abortion that we're talking about, that um, emergency care in a hospital is not you know, does not demand the inclusion of that exception because the language is slightly different. But if a court found that they were sane, I think that the federal government would win on this one under current law. I agree with John. Um, uh, Scott, what I interrupted so rudely, what I meant to say was the way in which Alito wrote the opinion was he said that we're going to leave it for the political process to decide this. And if this were 1936 and we were long before the expansion of the Commerce Clause, uh, you could make the argument if you couldn't do it through direct regulation, then you could not do it through a spending condition. But now, presumably, if Congress wanted to pass the statute which says 
that abortion shall be on demand and Roe v. Wade shall be the law of the land or something like that. I see no current impediment to them doing so. And so the conditions that you impose, if it's consistent with direct regulation, are going to be very, very hard to resist. Uh, the other point, which I think is the Justice Department was clever. Uh, it did not bring a case which said that uh, the state of Iowa has to force doctors to perform abortions on demands to 16-year-olds who simply don't want to be pregnant. It said, if you look at the traditional definitions of justification, defending the life of the mother is critical. But if you're talking about the health of the mother, even I, I especially I, if you were to tell me that if a woman had to go through pregnancy, that she would be anemic for the rest of her life, that she could not have other kinds of children, that she could not return to work in any situation, she'd have to sit in a wheelchair, I would save myself. Who are we kidding? Uh, the general principles of self-defense, which is kind of behind this, certainly don't say that you're not entitled to use a knife against an assailant. If all he wants to do is to carve you up so that you won't be able to walk again, that you're only entitled to use self-defense in the case of threats to life. And so I think, in effect, that on the merits, if I were running the state of Iowa, um, I wouldn't even fight the law. Idaho. I would, this is in Idaho. Idaho. Okay. If I were in the state of Idaho, I'd modify the statute and try to give a respectable definition of what counts as damage to the health of the mother, because you don't want to say, you know, if it turns out that if you have an abortion, you may have a surgical scar somewhere along the line. Uh, that's the reason for you to simply allow abortions. It would. I mean, so you have to essentially go through a thing, something like that, or rather, excuse me, if you had a delivery, they're going to be a cesarean, you're going to get a scar. You have to go through uh, something of that sort. And I would urge them to do that because I don't think, in effect, understand the doctrine. Um, if you're basically a pro-life type as I am, uh, that this exception is actually broad enough to cover the kinds of contingencies that I think, oh, this is, again, the same problem that we had in other issues. When you start talking about rights to anything, there are always implied defenses. And in this particular case, you have an implied set of defenses for the woman who is going to be subject to kinds of restrictions under the criminal law. And I don't think they should be construed unduly narrowly. I think they should be construed in accordance with the common sense of mankind, as it were. And I'm not aware of anybody who, when they're dealing with self-defense, draws a line between life and every other injury to the person when it comes to the use of force. And so I think in that case, it would go that way. So I would advise them to do it. I mean, I do think it would be a very serious intrusion if what they said is, you know, uh, we've looked at this and we think abortions at will are appropriate. And the state police power has nothing to say about that. Um, there are going to be some weird machinations about the Commerce Clause that will take forward on that case to see whether or not that goes within it. Uh, there are doctrines which say that the law of marriage, to some extent, is outside the scope of the commerce power because it's not commerce in its obvious way. Uh, I haven't looked at these exceptions very closely, but the government has to understand the more it looks like it's overreaching, the more likely it is that you will see a Lopez like exception to the Commerce Clause, spring up again. Uh, this is now 30 years after the decision, or close to 30 years after the decision had come over there. So uh, there are going to be projects for the law. I might ask for a swing by way of an anecdote. Oh, in 1967, when I was arguing the finals at the Yale Law School in the Moot Court, the proposition that I had to defend was that a woman could not get an abortion in New Jersey, but she could get one in New York. And her Catholic doctor and a Jewish woman did not tell her that an abortion was A, indicated for German measles and B, was available in New York. 
Uh, the easy case was to say, was it malpractice to the wife? But I was given the problem of trying to defend the so-called wrongful life doctrine, which said that the child was allowed to argue that it was better off dead and therefore was entitled to damages. Um, uh, philosophical questions like that do not belong in moot courts, uh, but you're going to see many <laughs> cases. Uh, actually, I can tell you what happened. I mean, I'm still proud of this. I, I was a sassy kid, and Judge Leonard Moore, no. he looked... <laughs> he looks at me, and and what he says is, "Well, you mean you a little girl with a lock, a curly <laughs> no, lock." No, I, I was horrid. I was horrid. He looked at me. And he said, how would you charge the jury? So I sat there and I rattled off a charge. I said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if you should find that this individual is better off dead than alive, then you have to award them damages for the amount of the money. And he looked at me and he said, young man, you had memorized that. I said, absolutely not, Your Honor. Here's another charge. And then I rattled off a second one. And for the rest of the time that I was up there, darts came out of his eyes uh, because it was a stupid question. You could charge anybody on an absurd theory. If the theory is absurd, the jury charge is going to be absurd. <laughs> but all they have to do is they have to be in power. He hadn't quite thought about all of that. Well, anyhow, that ended my appellate committee for many, many years. Um, in fact, I actually won, but I only won by a tie because he convinced that he vetoed everybody else to veto a sole victory to poor Richard Epstein. And so uh, now, 50 years, 55 years later, I get to tell the story. And the happy news was one of the other judges on the panel was Simon Rifkin, the legendary uh, lawyer at Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Ward, and Garrison. And when I went to the firm that summer to work, he gave me this sly wink as if to say, a young man, I don't know whether you did good or bad, but you certainly made that man feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> and you've been doing it ever since, Richard. Well, I mean, La yeah. La last thing that last thing that I will ask you guys on this, just a, a variation on the question. You tell me whether this is any different. So the other wrinkle that we've had is this one that was announced last week, which is the Biden administration saying that the VA will provide abortion services in cases of rape, incest or health dangers to the mother, including in states that have banned the procedure. So, John, how viable is this policy? Because it's the federal government administering the procedure, presumably, I'm guessing, all federal facilities. The theory is it circumvents the state restrictions. Is that right? Is it for people not eligible for the VA generally? Yeah. So, one, right, we should all recognize these are very marginal impacts. <laughs> Both this and the previous thing we talked about are marginal impacts on the number of abortions that are going to be carried out in this country and right. uh, the ability of states to pursue the policies that their voters want them to pursue. I, this, I mean, these are, I kind of think of them as kind of feeble. Uh, but two, yes, the federal government can do that. Uh, the federal government is allowed to pursue its own policies in what are called federal enclaves, which uh, the largest example would be Washington, D.C. is a federal enclave, uh, the, but yeah, federal um, military bases, federal reservation, you know, Indian reservations, uh, federal facilities are governed by federal law, not state law. Um, that's why for, you know, there's actually a lot of Supreme Court cases, some very controversial ones in the last few years about why uh, reservations don't have to obey state law and um, have to they obey their own criminal procedure. Law. Yeah. So um, uh, in the state of Oklahoma, much of it apparently is owned by <laughs> the reservations and state criminal law doesn't apply in all the territory. No, state criminal law doesn't. Yeah, state criminal. Right, right. Yeah, state but criminal federal law. criminal law federal does. Criminal law does. Yes. To be and, fair, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Oklahoma. I'm not sure it applied before. <laughs> uh, let's be i mean this was what i mean speaking about but it was finished so I, I don't think this va thing is actually close richard may be right that um there are certain statutes 
that define who's eligible to be treated at the VA. So I don't think that uh, the VA could just say we're opening an abortion clinic. You have to already be eligible to go to the VA. But, you know, besides that, I mean, of course, VAs have emergency rooms. And so if you were near the VA and you need to use emergency room, I think you have the right to use it. But I don't think it's going to make a big difference in terms of right number of abortions performed in the country. Well, um, I think, in effect, that the Biden administration is probably correct to the extent that it's talking about its own resources. Um, this would be the question as to whether or not the state governments are going to be able to subordinate the federal governments uh, with respect to their own expenditures on their own places. But the uh, eligibility question that John says, I think, is right. So, I mean, even though John and I disagree on some things, the nobility of pure reason is sufficiently powerful that on this one, we we end on an unaccustomed note of harmony and goodwill. <laughs> it won't last. All right, <laughs> fellas, that's going to do it. My thanks to you both, as always, to our producer, Scott Emmerich, and to all our wonderful listeners. Remember to do us a favor and rank the show wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org. All right, very nice. That was long. It didn't feel long, though, by the way.